me welcome everybody today. If you are new or visiting our church family, my name is Aaron. I'm the pastor here of Coastline Church, and we're really glad that you chose to be with us today. And I want to point out one thing to you. When you came in and they gave you this worship guide, uh, that was actually written with you in mind. It was created thinking about any questions you may have about today's experience and a little bit about who we are as a church family. Uh, inside of it, you will find our message notes. We are finishing a series today, and so the uh, scripture and blanks, as well as our Small group discussion guide is there available for you, and I would encourage you, if you're not a part of a small group, to talk to somebody on our team. We'd love to help get you connected, because that's where you get the most out of every one of these messages, is being able to talk it through with other people and figuring out, how do I actually apply this to my life? And then finally, I want to point out one thing. In every one of these, the most important thing uh, I think we do is our prayer cards. Uh, every week, we are praying for you and praying for this church and the people of this church and this community. And it helps when we have information. Like, we're going to pray for you generally, like, God bless our church. But, it, but it's a little bit more effective if we know what's going on and we can actually pray specifically for you. And so I would encourage you, whatever you're facing in life, big or small, we would love to come alongside and pray with you and pray for you. So take a moment today. Let us know what's going on at the end of the service. You can give this to any of our leaders or drop it into any tithe and offering box on site. You'll have a team of us praying for you. Uh, let me welcome everybody who's joining us online right now. There's a lot of people that are streaming live, uh, so we're glad that you're with us. Those of you in the cafe and those of you at all of our other services, we're so glad that you're joining us uh, this weekend. Before I get into the message, tomorrow night is our next Grace Wins. Grace Wins is an event that we do throughout the year here partnering with other churches in our community where we are tackling the epidemic of uh, sex addiction and pornography in our nation today. And so what we do is we gather as men and we give hope and grace and, and help people realize that that doesn't have to be the reality of your life. Well, tomorrow night's Grace Wins is going to be a little different because it's not just for people who are struggling or know someone that's struggling. We're actually inviting all the men of our church to come because as we look at the research and the statistics, this is an epidemic that is literally decimating America right now. Uh, it's destroying marriages, families. It's not just men anymore. You look at the research on how many women are addicted to pornography right now or have sex addictions. It's, it's beyond what you can possibly imagine I was reading some research recently. It was a psychologist from either Harvard or Yale said, it is as if we have created a drug 100 times more powerful than heroin that is free and readily accessible, injected through the eyes in the privacy of your own home. And it's incredible, just the damaging effects, what it does to the brain, the, the chemicals it releases in your brain. That's why it's one of the most difficult addictions to get through. And so we're asking all of our, our men to take a stand. Uh, take a stand with us. Come and let us help train you, inform you, because whether you struggle with it or not, the reality is you're around people who do. Uh, when you look at the research, it, it is very, very likely that people you work with, neighbors, friends, family, Somebody in your life is struggling, and we need to know how to address it, uh, how to give people hope, and how to show people a clear path to freedom. And so we're going to be talking about that tomorrow night at 6.30. Uh, finally, uh, many people over the last few weeks, as we've kind of rebranded, and uh, our dream team got hats and sweatshirts recently just as a gift for their faithful service at our dream team party. A lot of people have seen the t-shirts that the team on the weekend have been wearing, and they've been saying, we want a shirt. We, 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 like, where do you get those? We want one. 
And so we decided this week to go out and buy everyone who attends this weekend a brand new Coastline shirt. So we have a gift for you. I don't know about you, but I like free stuff, and, and I think other people like free stuff. And so we got everybody here a t-shirt, all variety of sizes. So when you leave today, stop by, pick up your shirt just so that you know that they look good. We have two uh, guys on our dream team who really could be male models, and so they modeled them for you last night. <laughs> Because it all, you know, if you see it looking good on a model, then you know that it'll look good on you for some reason. And so we have two guys who modeled it, Gary and Tom. You know them on the Dream Team. So as you leave today, uh, we want to encourage everyone. And, and if you're not part of our church family, uh, this is for you also. This is just everyone who is here this weekend. We want to give you a T-shirt uh, of the new look. And so all different sizes out there. And for all of the kids at Coastline Kids today, we have all sorts of kids sizes down in the kids building. So when your kids leave church today, they will also get a shirt down at Coastline Kids, all the kids who attended down there. And so we just wanted to bless everyone because we all like free stuff, and it's fun. And uh, so we went out and got you a shirt. So everyone's been asking. We are wrapping up a series today. We've been on a journey for 19 weeks on the book of Galatians, and it has been powerful. The beginning of the year, um, God put on my heart as clear as day that this was a year we needed to take our church deep into the gospel to really understand the gospel, to, to, in other words, move the gospel from our head to our heart, not just intellectual head knowledge, but to allow the, the, the implication of the gospel to land so heavy in our heart, it transforms every aspect of our life. And that takes time. It takes time. And I know there's people who've been asking, like, why is this series taking so long? Like, why, well, you know, why are we still in it? I mean, it's, it's, you know, can't we move on to something else? Well, the reality is it takes some time. I talked to a guy in our small group this week, and he was telling me that, that you know, he, he was one of the people who questioned how long the series was until around week 15 where he finally got it. And he said, it took me 15 weeks to finally figure it out. And so I'm glad it went on because I, it took me a while to really get to the place of Jesus plus nothing. And so we're not going to do this every year, probably every couple years. We'll take a book and tackle it like we've done. But it has been very, very uh, helpful for, for many people to really go deep into the gospel. So if you got your message notes, if you'll pull those out, we're finishing uh, the series today. We're going to end with chapter 6, the last verses of chapter 6. What we see in today's passage is Paul gives us a final warning and a final invitation. It's like his closing words, his final thoughts. So let's begin with the final warning. The final warning of Galatians is live by the gospel. Live by the gospel. Don't buy into religion. Live by the gospel. It is Jesus plus nothing. Live by the gospel. And this has huge implication in your life when you, when you really grab hold of what Paul is saying. So let's begin with verse 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction, that's what we do every week here, in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now, let me stop for a moment because there's many people who look at that phrase and they think, okay, well, time out. Paul just completely contradicted the entire book. Like all the way up until this point, Paul's saying it's Jesus plus nothing, it's Jesus plus nothing, it's Jesus plus... And now, now all of a sudden it's about how you live your life and whether you follow the rules and what you do. And if you don't do right, God's going to get you. Like, like this doesn't make any sense at all. Now, 
Just calm down for a minute. Paul's not an idiot. He knows what he's doing. Uh, what, what Paul is showing us here is a universal truth that has huge just practical implications in our life. But what he's also doing is he's going against popular belief and popular opinion. You see, our culture today has kind of this belief about life, and Paul is coming right up against it. Let me explain. Point number one in your notes, whatever, whatever, whatever you sow, you will reap. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain it like this. If you in your backyard garden sow tomato seeds, if you put tomato seeds into the ground, you will not grow corn. Now, I know that's deep, so let me say it one more time. Some of that missed you. Um, If you plant tomato seeds in your backyard, you will not grow corn. No matter how much you want to grow corn, it's not going to happen. This is an objective fact that is not based on your feelings and it's not based on your belief system. So no matter how much you believe you're going to grow corn, if you put tomato seeds in the ground, you are not going to grow corn. Whatever you sow, that is what you're going to get back. That's what Paul is saying. Point number two. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Now, I know those points sound very, very similar, but there's two words there that are very important for us to understand. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Now, look, it may look like nothing is happening. It may look like you've gotten away with it. It may look like nobody will ever find out what you just did. I promise you, you will reap. It will grow. Whatever you sow into the universe, into life, good or bad, positive or negative, it is going to have an impact on your life. You may not see it today. It may not come immediately, but it is coming and it is going to be good or it is going to be bad. And this is a universal truth that Paul is trying to get us to understand. Let me put it like this way. Here's the spiritual application. In the physical, we say that even if you don't believe in gravity, it's still true for you right? Like if you don't believe in gravity, that doesn't make gravity untrue in your situation just because of what you believe. But here's the problem. When it comes to morality, when it comes to spirituality, all of a sudden we we, we believe differently about the moral order of the universe or the spiritual order of the universe than we believe about the physical order or the natural order of the universe, You see, here's what this means. Popular opinion says in the world that we live in, what is wrong for one person may not be wrong for another person. So you can believe that, but that doesn't mean I have to believe that. Or or, or that may be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. Each person has to find their own beliefs. That's popular opinion right now. That's, That's what our culture believes. So what are they saying? What they're saying is, they, they, they do not believe that the objective moral order of the universe operates in the same way that the spiritual or the moral order of the universe operates, that, that the natural order, the physical order is different from the spiritual or the moral order, but Paul says, no, the objective moral order of the universe, spiritually speaking, operates exactly the same like the physical or the natural order order of the universe. And here's the argument that that you get. Well, that may be wrong for you, but that's not wrong for me. That may be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. But is that really true? 
And see, the reality is the person who will argue with you over this, they don't even believe it's actually true. Because you can poke holes into their belief system. How do we determine what somebody believes? Like, honestly, how do you determine what someone's belief? Watch what they do, not what they say. What they believe is not determined by what they claim or what they say. It's determined by what they do. Think about politicians. Politicians will get up and say, the public school system in my district is excellent, yet he'll send his own kids to a private school. Right? So watch what they do, not what they say. So if everybody gets to decide what is right and wrong for themselves, if everyone gets to decide what they want to believe and what what is good for them and, and bad for them, then let me ask you a question. What about rape? Is rape simply impractical or is it wrong? Well, well, that's different. Why is it different? You see, is it wrong no matter what the rapist believes? Because there are societies in the world today that men are allowed because of what they believe. So is it wrong or is it right based on belief system? Paul goes on in verse 8, he says, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. The flesh is your sinful nature. So he says, if you, if you do things to feed your sinful nature, if you do things to feed the part of yourself that, that completely violates God's order, God's law, the moral law of the universe, you will reap destruction. Now, it doesn't say God's going to punish you. Big difference. He says, whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So again, here's the implication. Many people think, I actually had this conversation with somebody in our church this week. Many people think that when you do good, God rewards you, and when you do bad, God punishes you. There are a lot of people who believe that. But it says God cannot be mocked. Just like gravity, there is a moral order to the universe. Think about it like this. If I eat a whole bunch of fatty foods, I'm going to reap a bad heart. Why? Because the human body was never designed to consume that much fat without something breaking down, without, without something getting unhealthy. So if I give in to my sinful nature and I feed my sinful nature and I do things that violate the moral code of the universe, then what I'm reaping in my life is spiritual breakdown, spiritual destruction. This word destruction, when you study it in the Greek, means corruption, it means disintegration. So here's the point. Sin makes things fall apart. That's all Paul is saying. Paul is not saying God is going to punish you for sin. Paul is simply saying sin makes things fall apart. Sin is what happens when you break the moral order of the universe. Whether you believe in it or not believe in it, that's simply what takes place. And the word sin is not some horrible word. Like, you know, we've we've made the word sin so negative, like it's these nasty, evil, horrible things you do. But when you look in the Bible, the word sin simply means to miss the mark. If this is God's best for your life and you do this, you've missed the mark. Let me give you a practical example of sin. You can actually sin against your automobile. How? Well, if your owner's manual says to get an oil change every 5,000 miles and you don't get an oil change for 25,000 miles, you've sinned against your car, and what's going to happen? Something's going to break down. Something's going to disintegrate. Why? Because you missed the mark in how you were supposed to care for that car. You're not treating the car the way it was designed to be treated. And this is all that Paul is saying. So when God in the Bible says, you should forgive, I command you to forgive, it doesn't say that he's going to now punish you if you don't forgive someone. 
Like all of a sudden, your kid's going to flunk out of school and you're going to get laid off and fired because you didn't forgive. What God is saying is, listen, I did not design the human spirit to house unforgiveness. If you hold on to unforgiveness in the human you know, spirit, it is going to cause something to break down. There's going to be bitterness. It's going to affect you negatively. It's going to destroy relationships in your life because I did not create you to, to hold on to unforgiveness. That's, that's what Paul is getting at. And we need to look at every law in the Bible this way. Everything God commands in the Bible, this is how we're to view it. So if you see something in the Bible that you don't understand or you don't agree with, be very, very careful that you don't just discount it. Because you may not know the specific reason for God putting it in the Bible, but you can know the general reason. It's for your joy. But here's what makes this so hard. There are very few things that God says not to do that feel bad right away. I mean, think about it. There's a whole list of, of, of things sexually that the Bible says you shouldn't do, and none of them feel bad in the moment, do they? Like, actually, in the moment, they feel really good, and they're very enjoyable in the moment, but yet you play that down the road a little bit, and it reaps destruction in your life. It brings brokenness. It, it, it hurts. See, this is what makes it so bad, because it doesn't feel wrong when you're doing it. And here's why. God says, listen, I made this beautiful gift called sex. I designed it. I created it. And I want it to be for your enjoyment and for your pleasure. And you're going to love it. But if you, if you don't do it right, it's going to hurt you. If you take it outside of the way I've designed it, it's not going to work for you. And this is all that Paul is trying to get at. If we break the moral order of God, we hurt ourselves. What about people who don't believe in God? What about atheists? People don't believe the Bible. Well, think, think this way. It is, I mean, if you really think about it, it is impossible to say I'm an atheist or impossible to say I don't believe in God, but I do know that there is right and wrong. Like, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist, but I do believe that murder is bad. That is intellectually impossible. If you really think about that, there is no right and wrong without design and purpose. And there's no design and purpose if there's not a designer. Let me illustrate it like this. Let me give you a nonsense question, a question that if you really think about this question, it, it, is, it is ridiculous. It makes no sense at all. If I come up to you and I ask you the question, is this a good watch? I mean, that's nonsense. Is this a good watch? Good for what? See, but you inherently knew what I was asking, didn't you? You knew that I was asking you, does this watch keep time? Is it a good watch? Will it tell me what time it is, right? But you understand what you just did? There's no such thing as abstract good or bad. There is only good or bad if it fits within a purpose. Because if I ask the question, is this a good watch? Good for what? Is it good for hammering nails? Is it good for driving to work? Is it good for fighting off lions in the desert? Like, what are you asking me is the watch good for? If I don't understand the purpose of it, I can't tell you if it's good or bad. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't determine good or bad if there's not a purpose. You can't say rape is wrong or murder is wrong unless there's a purpose to human life. And there can't be a purpose unless there is a designer. So if there's no God, then we're all accidents. And there's no such thing as right or wrong. All of us to say is there is a moral order to the universe, and it matters. It's going to make a difference in your life, good or bad. 
That's all Paul is getting at. He's not saying God's going to punish you if you don't do this. He's simply saying, look, there's a moral order, and if you violate it, it's going to hurt yourself. And then he gives us a little thing in the middle that I'll touch on. It's actually tied in. I don't really have time to go deep into this today. You'll, you'll talk about this in your small group. But in verse 9, he says, let us not become weary in doing good. Let us not, let's not get tired, exhausted of doing what we know we're supposed to do, living the way we know we're supposed to live. For at the proper time, I hate that phrase, by the way. Like, I'm, honestly, if there was anything I could take out of the Bible, it would be that phrase right there. Because the proper time for me is never convenient. I don't know about you, but the proper time is never early. Like, like, why can't God show up early sometime? Like, why does he have to wait to the very last second when I'm sweating and, and freaking out and anxious? Like, why can't he just show up early and not put me through all the drama? I don't know about you, but I don't like that phrase at all. He says, we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. So here's the point. God is never late, but he's rarely early. See, here's Satan's strategy. If, if, if Satan knows that God has a miracle on its way and it's going to arrive at your doorstep on Thursday, Satan is trying to get you to give up on Wednesday. He's trying to get you to leave on Wednesday so that you never see it, you never get it, you never receive it. Well, that's why Paul says don't grow weary doing good. So again, you'll talk about that more in your small group this week. Then we turn a corner and we get into this final kind of, you got the warning, which is live by the gospel. And then in verse 10, it begins to turn a corner. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So it's about to switch. We're getting into the final invitation. And to be very honest, this is the most important part of the entire series. Paul saved the very best for last. And we're about to look at what I believe is probably one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Now, I know pastors are notorious for saying that. Like, like every week, this is the most important message you'll ever hear, and this is the most important <laughs> verse in the entire Bible. I know we say that a lot, and, and in our defense, we actually believe that every week. Like, we really do. <laughs> we really, really do. Now, but I really thought about this honestly this week, and, and this is what makes Christianity different. It's what makes Jesus different. That we're going to look at a verse that is so powerful. When you get it, it changes everything. So the final invitation. Remember, the final warning, Paul says, live by the gospel. The final invitation, live by the gospel. Again, the whole book is about one point, Jesus plus nothing. The entire book, live by the gospel. You don't begin by the gospel and then all of a sudden advance to something else. No, you live by the gospel, you run by the gospel, you finish by the gospel. It's all the gospel. The entire Christian life is built on the gospel, every aspect. You never leave the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Again, remember, the whole book is about Paul defending Christianity against some false teachers. There were some false teachers that were trying to pervert Christianity. They were trying to make it ugly, make it hard, make it difficult, turn it into a religion. And Paul was saying, no, it is the gospel. Don't make it ugly. Don't make it hard. Keep it pure. And so Paul's gospel was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's step one, believe. We've talked about this a lot in the series. At that moment, you're saved. There's nothing else you need to do. It is Jesus plus nothing. The moment you believe in Jesus, that's enough. You are saved. 
Then you're empowered to keep the law of God. In other words, after you're saved, after you believe and and Jesus does it all through the gospel, then all of a sudden there's a spiritual energy that is generated in your life and you now have the ability to live out Christianity and and to follow God. Not, not, Not saying you're perfect, but you have this new energy to follow God passionately. The teachers come along and they mess it all up. They say, no, 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 that's not right. Here's what the teacher said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't have issue with Jesus. It was like, it's fine to believe in Jesus. But it's not enough. You need to obey the law of God. You need need to follow the rules. You need to become very religious. You need to do everything right. Like, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus, and you need to act like a Jew and go get circumcised. That was the issue then. And then and only then are you saved. So you're not saved with Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus follow the rules. Jesus plus be very religious. Jesus plus be morally virtuous. And Paul is fighting. And can I say the honest truth is there are many people today who attend church every single week who are actually following the teacher's religion and not the gospel. Because it's so subtle. Let me put it like this, a question. Is Jesus Christ your Savior, or is Jesus Christ your teacher and example? See, this is the difference. Is Jesus just someone to show you how to live a better life so that you, know, you can enjoy life a little bit more, or is he your Savior? And this is the problem. Many of us have never felt lost. How can we be saved if we've never felt the need of being saved? Like, How can we get found if we've never felt lost if you've never been at the place where you have felt completely helpless and completely hopeless how can jesus be a savior in that moment jesus is really just a great teacher and a great example and somebody to model your life after and there's a big big difference now here's the reason why we're talking about this the average person today the average person the average person in america the average person in our community i would say the average church attender believes that what really matters spiritually is not what you believe, but how you live. And wouldn't you agree, the average person believes that? That what really matters spiritually, it's not what you believe, it's how you live. It's not, it's not what you believe about doctrine, it's not what you believe about God, it's not what you believe about Jesus, it's, it's not what you believe about the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ or the incarnation of the ascension or how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's not, it's not any of that at all. I mean, it's how you live your life. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you turn the other cheek? Are you following you know, the, the, the path that Jesus asked you to follow? It's not what you believe about Jesus that matters. It's whether or not you live like Jesus that matters. And that's what most people believe, isn't it? I think if we're honest... We'd say there, there are people even here today who believe that, that it's not, it's not what you believe about Jesus that really matters. It's whether or not you live like Jesus that matters. But Paul comes along and says the exact opposite. Paul says there is nothing further from the tooth. What matters is not what Jesus told you to do. What matters is what Jesus has done, what Jesus came to do. So let's dig into this. He says, see what large letters I write to you. In other words, if this was a text message, he'd be in all caps right now. He's ending the chapter. He's ending the book. He's saying, listen, I'm about to give you the most important thing in this letter. Everything I've written up until this point has been great, but I'm about to lay it out 
in the most important way I can. I'm, I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh, that's being very religious and very morally good and, and, and you know, following all the rules really, really well, are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Because again, it's not Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus adopt you know, Jewish culture. And then you're saved. He says the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So they don't want, they, they don't want to be persecuted for what the gospel really says. Because if we're very honest, nobody really is attacking you know, religion in the sense of no one, no, no one is out there saying you shouldn't love your neighbor as yourself. No one's out there attacking the rules per se. What they're offended by and what people are persecuted for is the cross. And we'll, we'll dig into that. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. So even those who are trying to be religious, they can't love their neighbor as yourself. That is impossible. I mean, I mean, honestly, have you ever loved anyone as much as you love and care about and take care of yourself? I mean, many of us don't even love our kids that much. <laughs> Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never. Now, let me stop for a moment. Again, this was written in the ancient original Greek language. This is a triple negative in the Greek, which means he cannot say this any stronger. Now, now the English translation is really weak here. See, what Paul is saying is, may I never, ever, ever, absolutely under any circumstance, may I never, ever do this. That's how strong this is in the Greek. May I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See the difference? He says, you know, I'm not going to boast in the Sermon on the Mount and love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus walking on water and all the things that Jesus taught, you know, and all, all, you know, how we're supposed to live our life. No, I'm boasting in one thing what Jesus came to do. That is the only, he's not saying nothing else matters, he's saying nothing else comes close to mattering as much as this. This is most important, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Nothing but the cross, Paul says. So let me, let me give you an example. The week before Jesus dies, he gets all of his disciples, they go out of town to Caesarea Philippi, he asks them a question, who do people say that I am? And then he asks them a very direct question, who do you say that I am? And in that moment, Peter looks at Jesus, and Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He says, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven gave you that. This, this is incredible. And then all of a sudden, the conversation turns. Look at this in Matthew 16. From that time on, so as soon as Peter understood who Jesus was, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and that he must be killed, the cross. And it was at that moment that Peter lost it. Peter blew up. Peter got offended. Peter got angry. See, Peter didn't mind Jesus the teacher. Peter didn't mind Jesus the miracle worker. What Peter could not handle is the thought of the cross. It him, And he actually rebuked Jesus and said, never, never, we will never let that happen. And what did Jesus say to Peter? He didn't say, well, you have your beliefs and I have mine, so. <laughs> no, he said, get behind me, Satan. 
That is Satan, is what Jesus said to him. You see, if you believe that what is really important is not what you believe about what Jesus did, but whether or not you live like Jesus, you're in the grip of Satan. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, think about the Gospels. The Gospels are terrible biographies. I mean, think about it. Like, if you were a historian and they tasked you to write a biography on somebody's life, how would you do it? You wouldn't do it the way they did it in the Gospel. I mean, look at, look at the book of John. John takes the first half of the entire book, the first half of the book, to deal with 99.9% of Jesus' life. And then the second half of the book, chapter 12 to 21, dealing with one week of Jesus' life. There's no balance to that. That's not how you write a biography. What was John doing? He was glorying in the cross. He was showing us that what really matters, what is most important, is what Jesus came to do, not what Jesus did. Not all the miracles, not all the teaching, not all the wonderful things that he said. What matters most is not what Jesus said, but what Jesus did. Because it's not how you live your life, it's what you believe about the cross. You see, religion leads us to boast in ourselves. Look how good I am. I'm following all the rules. Look at the way I'm living my life. But the gospel leads us to boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus look how good I am and Jesus plus look how well I follow the rules and Jesus plus look how religious I am. It is, G- it is the cross. Why do you think Jesus makes such a big deal about communion? He says, do this often and every single time you do this, do it to remember me. It's one of the only things he told us Christians to do often. Why? Because he wants us to go back to the cross. Because communion is all about the cross. It's all about what he did. It's not about what he taught. It's about what he did. And he says, I want you to remember this often. That's why we as a church, every single service we do, we have communion available for people. That's why as a church, every Saturday morning, as a church family, we receive communion together at our prayer meeting. It's why many of our small groups on a regular basis receive communion together as a small group. Why? It's all about the cross. It's all about the cross. It's all about the gospel. That's what matters most. Jesus wants the entire Christian faith built around his death, the cross. I mean, think about this. The world didn't need another religious moral teacher. Other other religious leaders said, love your neighbor. Jesus wasn't the first one to say, the Old Testament said, love your neighbor. It wasn't his teaching that changed the world. And you may agree with me that I think he, he is the best teacher of them all, and he put it in a way that just makes more sense than everyone else ever put it, but it's still not his teaching that matters most. Because there were other teachers. The world already knew, love your neighbor, what the world needed was a new heart. So that we could love our neighbor. What makes Jesus different, what makes Christianity different is the cross More than him walking on water, more than him healing the sick, more than everything he said, it is the cross. So here's what he's saying. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christ follower, you have to understand the cross. But he's also saying if you do know Jesus, if you are a Christian, the way you grow, the way you mature, the way you develop your faith is you understand the cross. You never get away from the gospel. It's always Jesus plus nothing. Paul says, I boast in nothing but the cross. So he said in Corinthians, I don't bring you anything but the power of the cross. But there's a challenge to believing in the cross. There's a challenge. 
and many people don't want the challenge that it brings. Look what he says. Let's go back to verse 12. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this, see, here's the challenge, is to avoid being persecuted for the cross. See, if I embrace the gospel, if I embrace the cross, I'm going to get persecuted. I'm going to get made fun of. No one one is out there making fun of Christians for love your neighbor as yourself. I hope you understand that. The hang-up people have with Christianity is the cross. They don't, and, and, and there are a lot of people that they don't want to be persecuted for the cross. He says, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Again, he says, you're not going to get persecuted for following religion. You're going to get persecuted for believing in the cross. Remember the false teachers. They said, believe and obey, and then you'll be saved. So it's, so it's belief plus what you do, then you're saved. And they said that because they did not want to be persecuted. So why does the cross bring persecution? Well, let's go back to chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 12. Paul says, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? So if I'm still preaching religion, if I'm still preaching that it's about being very good and morally virtuous and and, and following all the rules, why, why, why would they be attacking me? He says, in that case, the offense of the cross would be abolished. If I preach religion, it wouldn't be offensive anymore. Why, why, why wouldn't religion be offensive? Because it's all about us and our effort and our ability, and that's the way we feel. Like, like I don't want to be told that I'm weak. I don't want to be told that I can't do anything on my own. Like, if I feel like then I, I can add something to the equation, it's no longer offensive. But if I feel like you can't do anything, you're basically worthless without Jesus, that's offensive. So what Paul is saying is the only way to get to the sweetness of the grace of God, the beauty of the cross, is you have to go through the offense. And the false teachers were repulsed by the offense of the cross. So here's the test. How do you know whether you really understand the cross? Have you ever found it offensive or have you ever felt the offense of it? See, when you say the only way, the only way, the only way a person can be saved is through the death of Jesus Christ, how do people react? When you say that, they don't say, well, you have your view and we have our view. No, they get offended at that statement. They get offended at that statement. That message offends. But the only way to get through the sweetness is to go through the offense. In other words, if you've never been offended by the cross or if you've never felt the offense of the cross kind of from other people, then you've never understood it. You've never understood it. And that is why it hasn't changed your life. Again, The goal is to get it from your head to your heart. If you don't truly understand it, it's not going to land and and impact your heart. One of the craziest beatitudes in the Bible is when Jesus in Matthew 11, he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. What does that mean? Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He's saying, listen, anyone who ever truly comes to grips with what he came to do is going to feel the offense of that. And he said, blessed is the person who will walk through the offense of what I came to do to find the sweetness of it, to find the beauty of it. In other words, they felt the offense of the cross without taking offense with the cross. Doesn't mean that you have to go through a season where you're angry at God and you're offended at God, but there has to come a point where you feel the offense that the cross creates. See, what Jesus and Paul is saying is the same thing. Anyone who truly understands it is going to feel the offensiveness, the outrageous, and that's where the world is at today. I mean, you look at the the popular atheist critique of Christianity. Alfred Ayer said the Christian doctrine of the cross is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. 
So the world believes. Bertrand Russell said anyone who is profoundly human could never believe that God would ever punish sin in that way. Because it's bitter on the outside, it's sweet on the inside. And you cannot taste the sweetness until you've tasted the offense. So why is it offensive? What makes the gospel offensive? What makes the cross offensive? Look, it doesn't matter if you're modern or old-fashioned, if you're conservative, if you're liberal, it offends everyone. And here's why. The cross is the greatest monument to our wickedness and our impotence as mankind. It's the greatest monument. Here's what it comes down to. The best way I can illustrate it is why did Jesus die for you? That's what it comes down to. Why did Jesus have to die? Why does there have to be a cross in Christianity? So let me put it like this. I want you to imagine you're standing in your front yard and your house is burning down. Your house is burning down and and there's nothing you can do to save it. it. It's past the point of being saved. But fortunately, you got your your spouse out, you got your children out, you got some of your personals and your valuables out of the house, and you're standing in the front yard. And all of a sudden, your next-door neighbor comes over, and your neighbor says to you, I want to show you how much I love you. And he goes running wildly into the house, and it burns down on top of him, killing him. How many of you would feel like, my neighbor loved me so much? Or would you feel like, what an idiot? (laughs) What an absolute moron. He just ran into a burning house. What a lunatic. But what if your child was in the house? And your child was trapped in the house and you were trapped outside and you couldn't do anything to get to them and they were going to die. And all of a sudden, your neighbor comes over and says, let me show you how much I love you. And he goes running wildly into the house. He rescues your child, losing his own life in the process. Then how would you feel? Not a lunatic anymore, is he? He's now your hero. So I want you to think about this. To die voluntarily is repulsive unless there's no other way to save a life. So are you starting to understand why the cross is so offensive? Look, we're either hopelessly lost and Jesus' death makes tremendous sense because there's no other way, or he's an idiot that ran into a burning house for no reason. If there is any other way to get to God apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the cross, if you can find God by just being a good person and by being nice, there is no reason for Jesus to die. It was idiotic. It's outrageous. It's offensive to even think about it that way. Let me put it the best way I can. Because I've actually had this conversation, explaining the gospel to someone. I've heard someone say to me, are you trying to tell me that my grandmother, who is the sweetest person in the world, like I've never seen her do a mean thing to anybody. She helped anyone that ever needed help. Yes, she wasn't religious and she didn't believe in God. She didn't go to church, but there was no one ever is. Are you trying to tell me she's in hell? Hmm. Starting to feel the offense of the gospel now? He's starting to feel the offense of the cross? You see, if that's not true, then Jesus ran into a burning house like an idiot. And he died for no reason. See, what you cannot say with any intellectual integrity at all is Jesus' death on the cross is wonderful. It's amazing. I love what he did. But, you know, honestly, I believe all good people are going to find God. You can't say that with any integrity. It's impossible. Have some guts. I 
mean, see, you cannot find the beauty of what Jesus did until you're offended by it, until you, or you feel the offense of it. And look, this upsets liberal people because it's intolerant. It's intolerant. See, here's the point. We begin by grace being justified by faith in what Christ has done. That is an intolerant statement. That is an incredibly exclusive in statement. And it is. Only by the cross. Only what Jesus has done. Not about being a good person and sweet and nice and kind and caring. It's what Jesus did through the cross. But can I tell you, this is an incredibly inclusive exclusivity. If you really think about it. On the other hand, the gospel, the cross, offends conservatives. Why? Because here's what the cross means. The cross means that that parent who tried really, 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 really hard, they worked like crazy to be a great parent and provide for their children and love for their children and care their children is in the exact same boat as that deadbeat, alcoholic, drug addict parent who abused their children, let other people abuse their children, and neglected their children. They're exactly the same. They both need the cross. You see how it offends conservatives too? See, the morally disciplined person is no different than the person who gave in to every temptation. The person who lived a, a wild, you know, sexual life is no different than the person who was faithful and followed all the rules. And what conservatives will say is this is dangerous. The gospel is dangerous because how are we ever going to get people to live good lives if we don't shame them and scare them into doing right? That's why conservatives love religion. But the cross also means that we continue by grace, not by anything we do. See, it offends liberals, it offends conservatives, it offends everybody when you really think about it. Everyone is offended. And here's why, because the cross goes against every strategy of pride and self-salvation. Pride is what makes the conservatives say it's dangerous to say a person who's a moral failure is in the same boat as a good person, and pride is what makes a liberal person say, you're telling me that I'm so weak that only through Jesus can I be saved? Yes. It's the cross. And if you've never found it offensive, if you've never felt the offense of it, or if you've never found it beautiful and sweet, I'm asking you to think about it. And this is something you'll discuss this week in your small group. So let me end quickly. Verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. The Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That was the many times Paul was tortured for Christianity. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. He says, follow this rule. Earlier, it says, the one who receives instruction. Let me put it this way. There's two ways to do Christianity, and this is how we're going to close. There's two ways to do Christianity. Uh, let, me, let me illustrate like this. There's two ways to take a college class. How many of you have been to college, ever taken a college course? There's two ways to take a college course. You can enroll in the class or you can audit the class, right? You can enroll or you can audit. What's the difference? Well, if you audit the class, you come and go as you please. You can take a test if you want to take a test. But when you audit a class, you're not accountable. There's no accountability. You're not accountable to learn the information. You're not going to be tested or graded on the information. There's no accountability. There's two ways to do Christianity. You can audit Christianity or you can enroll in Christianity. And let's be honest, there are a lot of people attending church every single week across America who are auditing Christianity. They're not accountable. They're not in a small group. They're not faithfully serving. They're not committed anywhere. They're just auditing. They come and go as they please. They kind of get what they want out of it. But it's just auditing. Now, let me put it like this. How many of you, if you were having heart surgery, would allow a surgeon to operate on you 
who went to every lecture, went to every class, had all the book knowledge, took every single test, but he never had any lab experience. Like he could have aced every test. How many of you allow that surgeon to operate on you? No. It'd be foolish. Why? You want somebody with experience. You want someone who's been in the lab, somebody who's done the practical work, not just the lectures. How many of you would allow a pilot to fly a plane who, who again, had all the book knowledge, took all the tests, did every lecture, but he doesn't have any flight hours? How many of us who are auditing Christianity are doing that to our friends and neighbors? We have friends and neighbors who need help. We have friends and neighbors whose lives are falling apart, their marriages are falling apart. They know we go to church, they ask us questions. And we, and we try to help them based on what we know, but we're just auditing. We're no different than the surgeon operating with no lab. We're no different than the pilot flying with no flight hours. So here's the challenge. Follow this rule. Receive these instructions. Jesus plus nothing, the gospel. And so I'm going to close with this. We call this our one-year challenge. We talk about this often as a church. Here's what I'd like you to consider. For those of you who, who, if you were honest with yourself, would say, you know what, I think I'm auditing. I don't know if I've really enrolled. I don't really see any accountability here. I just kind of come and go as I please. I'm not really serving. I'm not in a small group. I'm just kind of auditing. And, and, and you've been around for a while, so I'm not talking to, like this is your first week. I'm not talking to you. One-year challenge. Give us one year of your life and do it all. Run the game plan the way we prescribe it. Go through growth track. Find a dream team. Be in a small group. Start the one-year Bible. Pray. Give us one year of your life. Do it all the way we prescribe it. And if your life isn't better a year from now, then here's my promise and commitment to you. I'll leave the church with you, and we'll go find another church. Because obviously we don't know what we're doing. But what I've seen is it only takes typically three to four months, and all of a sudden something incredible begins to take place to give us one year of your life and just watch what happens. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I thank you for this series. As challenging and as long as it's been, God, we need to get to the place where it's all about the gospel. It's the cross. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's not what Jesus taught that matters most. It's what Jesus did that matters most. And when we allow the cross to land in our heart when we truly walk through the offensiveness of it to find the beauty of it it will transform every aspect of our life and that's what I pray for every person here today in Jesus name would you stand with me we're going to close with a song of worship as always our prayer team will be available and if you're here today and you've never embraced Jesus the cross you've never made that decision is give your life fully to him to follow him I want to ask you to come down and pray with somebody on our team. They would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it means to, to follow Jesus and to give him your life. If there's something else going on that you need prayer for, talk to our team. At the end of the song as you leave, don't forget your t-shirts. And most importantly, let me encourage everybody, stop by the Operation Christmas table, uh, uh, Christmas box table, and find out how you can make a difference in the life of a child somewhere in the world. Let's worship together.